Seb. I told you to take us in. I did it the last time. <laughs> All right. Anyway, okay. Let's let's. What do let's... you mean? I am taking us in. I'm saying, Seb, how are you? I haven't seen you in a long time. Okay, let's 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 make a do over of that. Count count us in again. It's your favorite part of the show, anyway. Seriously, I thought that was great. Okay, fine. Five, four. I'm taking us in. Three. Welcome to Talking Kotlin, the show that is on YouTube, and where else is it, Seb? It's also a podcast on SoundCloud and anywhere else you can find podcasts these days. Yes, and it's also a video on YouTube and anywhere you can find YouTube these days, which is essentially YouTube. And talking about YouTube, we had our first angry comment, right? Yeah, we did. And I mean, honestly... We we kind of committed the the mortal sin that I wasn't aware of. I told you. I told you. I told you. I spent four years, four years building up this show, introducing it, talking about the weather, and you stopped cutting that. Yeah, you've you've cultivated a culture, a following. Yeah, that surrounds the weather. So I'm not sure how this show can actually succeed without it. So we're definitely bringing that back. But I, but I think for that, we actually uh, need our guest. Hadi, do you want to tell us who we have on for today? Uh, today we have with us an Android engineer at Facebook, and he also teaches development classes at Stanford, which is what we're going to be talking to him about. Please welcome Rahul Pandey. Rahul. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Did I, did I pronounce your surname correctly? Yeah, Rahul Pandey. That's pretty good. Okay. Close enough. I think we need to get the most important part out of out of the way. Uh, how's the weather where you're at? Weather's been pretty good recently. I'm in Redwood City, California. So I think in general, you know, uh, Silicon Valley uh, climate's quite good. Even in, you know, Feb- February, March, it's, you know, pretty moderate. Not too cold, not too hot. So pretty happy over here. I love hot. I love hot weather. I hate cold weather. Yeah, I grew up in Michigan. So definitely this is a much nicer uh place to be compared to Michigan where, you know, it could snow in April. Much happier over here. That reminds me of a place we used to go for a conference. Back in the days, we used to go for a conference. Uh, it was in Ohio, Sandusky. And w- they used to organize a conference. It's called Code Mash. They used to co- organize it in January. And the only thing that, that was there was snow, just like snow, snow, and snow, and an indoor water park, which is why they were having the conference in January in Sandusky, Ohio. Yeah, I feel like the, the snow is fun if you're there for like a day or two just to look at it. But if you're living there and you have to shovel it and you have to live with it every day, not not a fun time. So. Have they not invented like heated pavements that just like constantly... We get a patent. I have not grown up in a place where there's been a lot of snow. Forgive me with my silly questions. Anyway, let's, let's, let's start with some interesting questions. And for that, we need Seb. Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, again, thanks so much, Raul, to for coming on to our show. Um, if if you're joining us from YouTube, you might have actually seen Raul just just very recently because uh, he gave a webinar on on teaching uh, teaching Kotlin and especially teaching uh, I think Android application development with Kotlin. Right? Uh, could you could you kind of like outline your your role in in teaching and and how you teach kind of Android and Kotlin just to kick us off? Yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah. So I've been teaching this class at Stanford for, for about a year now. 
And the idea is that it's designed for people who have some programming experience. Um, you know, they've done at least the two or three intro classes at Stanford. And now they want to get hands-on practical experience building Android apps. And of course, you know, the language that I use is Kotlin, which is why I'm here and talking to, to both of you. Um, but I tried to keep the class very focused on actually building things because I think that's what people are there for. And as a byproduct of actually building the Android app, I introduced certain Kotlin concepts and topics. And I think people, most students come into the class never having worked with Kotlin, or some of them have never even heard of Kotlin. But I think at the end of the quarter, a lot of students find that they love the Kotlin aspect of the class the most, even more than the Android aspect. So I think it, it, it's worked out really well. This is the point where you can kind of like pivot and say, folks, if you like Kotlin and you don't like Android, let's just teach you server-side stuff. You know? right. Let's just keep going. Like, They're talking about KTOR, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll pitch that next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but who are your like typical students? I, I mean, are they uh, with computer science backgrounds or do they come from other majors? Do they have any kind of knowledge or prerequisites around programming? Right. I mean, um, in terms of prerequisites, they have to have taken the core classes. So like the intro class at Stanford is in Python, and then C++ is the next one. And typically, they've taken you know, the class after that as well. It's an interesting mix of undergrads and graduate students, um, which actually leads to a really interesting class. Because you have some students who have just taken the intro classes. So they're actually quite early on in their programming journey. But then you also have um, a bunch of students who have done undergrad, worked out in industry for you know two, three, or four years, and then they're coming back to Stanford to do a master's. And they have, you know, of course, a really large uh, depth of programming, and they can pick things up really quickly. So having that interaction between students, I find is super valuable. And then in terms of the majors, I would say, yeah, the majority of them are probably computer science majors. Um, I did get a, quite a few MBA students, actually, the very first time I taught the class, which I think was really cool. Because I think, you know, if you're an MBA, um, you're doing this kind of just for fun to build something on the side. And I think they enjoyed it as well. I mean, I mean, mobile is like a, is, is, is really important these days, right? So I, I think everyone kind of appreciates getting, getting some kind of hands-on experience. But I actually want to pick up on, on one thing you said. You said that Stanford's uh, introductory courses are taught in Python. Is that right? Yep. The very, the very first class, 106A, is taught in Python now. Okay. Um, how does how do students acclimate to the paradigm change that comes from going from a language like Python, which is dynamically typed, interpreted, uh, not so strictly object oriented, I guess, as as Kotlin, to well, to to the Kotlin language? Yeah, I think it's a good, good question. I feel like. Um, so definitely everyone has experience with Python. Almost everyone has also some experience with Java. And I think the way a lot of students describe it is that Kotlin is like a very happy marriage between Kotlin, between Python and Java, where you have a lot of the safety of types that you, know, you, you may not have with Python, but you also have a lot of the expressiveness of the language that you may not get with Java. So it's a very happy kind of mix between the two. And I think one thing that I, I found is really valuable in terms of teaching is being able to relate Here's how you would do this thing in Python, and here's how you here's how you do it in Java, and let's translate that code into Kotlin. And being able to show people, you know, how idiomatic Kotlin looks is actually a really helpful way to get people comfortable with the language. Seb, I got a question for you. First of all, have you been reading the source, Acclimate? Like, what was wrong with Adapt? But anyway, so 
Well, what did you pick up first in, in university? Uh, so when I started, I actually started out with uh, with Java um, as as the first language. Before that, I did a little bit of like basic and stuff, but that was at home. But at university, we did we did Java, um, and then at some point, uh, I I kind of wanted to do mobile development. And and funnily enough, I ended up learning Objective C from uh, from one of your colleagues from CS one ninety three P from from Paul, uh, who who does the who does the iOS class. Uh, because all the materials were available online, um, and I just sat through that and worked worked through those in a couple of months on my own time. Uh, so yeah, I'm very excited about that. Actually, actually, speaking of this, the materials for your class can can people look at those online as well? Are these also available? Mm, I mean, so in, if you go to cs194a.stanford.edu, which is you know the the website for the class, all the slides that I present, along with the homework that I have, all that is public. Of course, like if you're not enrolled, then you won't be able to like join the Zoom sessions that we have for the actual class. But you know, a lot of the content is available um, if people are interested. But there's uh, so there's no like lecture recordings. There's just the like the supplemental material, slides, code examples. Yeah, I have um, a lot, I have a lot of pointers to like GitHub where I just you know put some of the code snippets. But yeah, you're right. There are no lecture recordings. I think Stanford is actually pretty. Um, they have a pretty robust policy around what lectures are they actually willing to put out in the public domain. Like 193P is a good example where it's actually quite famous in the sense that tons of people have taken it and benefited from it. But Stanford definitely doesn't do that for every class they offer. Okay, I see. So you know what, folks, uh, what uh, language I learned for mobile development when I was at university? For mobile development? There was no mobile development when I was at university. Yeah, I, I was learning modular too, but you could do really cool things with modular too, which we won't go into uh, right now. I mean, I learned how to do a linked list. Anyway, <laughs> impressive stuff, Adi. <laughs> okay, I actually did a stack as well. I did a stack. I did a queue, a linked list. It was it was a lot of fun. It was it was really cool. And we didn't have Stack Overflow. Well, I had a lot of Stack Overflows actually, but uh, yeah, we couldn't look that stuff up. So listen, I, I want to go back to the Python question a second. Have you encountered uh, a scenario where someone that has done Kotlin and has done Python comes to you and says, like, why aren't they teaching Kotlin instead of Python? I, I, I guess I haven't had a student actually make it that explicit. I, I do know that, you know, students really become a fan of Kotlin. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they've ever gone to the point of like, let's change the whole curriculum. No? curriculum to Kotlin. I mean, you know, one interesting thing, though, is that, you know, uh, the switch to Python actually happened relatively recently. Like when I went to Stanford, which is, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago now, the intro classes back then were Java. And so the transition to Python actually happened, I think, in the last uh, maybe three or four years. So I think they are, you know, evolving it, but there has to be kind of enough critical mass of people who know Kotlin and use it in industry for them to actually make that Make that right, so we can do another recording of this in a few years and and talk about how um, Kotlin is now the language default in Stanford. No, I mean, I actually I'm pretty bullish on Kotlin to be honest. I feel like I, I think we probably should revisit in a couple of years. I do think that they'll start to be picked up more and more in the university setting for just teaching intro programming independent of mobile development. I mean, we we would we would love to see it, right? We're we're really uh, focusing strongly on on everything outside of mobile as well here at JetBrains, and I think it's it's especially interesting that we're we're seeing Kotlin more and more in in topics of I don't know data science, machine learning, uh, which which kind of 
yeah, some is currently pretty much a dominated field by uh, by Python as a language. So, kind of, do you want to walk us through how how you you structure your your teaching? Because so, what I got from you for now was uh, that you introduce people to with a strong focus on the Android platform um, and using uh, code examples from other languages to kind of translate them them over and, and acclimate them to to what Kotlin looks like. But can you kind of speak a little bit more about how, uh, for example, how you split your time between uh, intro and then going for uh, going for Android specifics, or how you how you keep people uh, in the flow when when you teach these kind of things? Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot, so I'm happy to talk about my approach. Um, and there are kind of two guiding principles ped- pedagogically about how I approach the class. One is called flipped classroom. The idea there is that you know you try and have the time that you have in class, a synchronous time, and do something actually engaging and interactive with students, either students talking to each other or um, I'm asking them for feedback or asking them to, for help on a particular problem that I'm doing in class with them. And then the time at home, the time you know when people have their own time watching things, that's where they can do the video walkthroughs where they can pause the video, fast forward, slow it down, and rewatch things that you know they need help with or skip things they don't need help with. So flipped classroom is actually really powerful because you can focus, you can make students feel that the time they're spending in class is actually valuable time that they wouldn't have been able to get that value had they watched a recording of it. And that that's especially important, you know, with COVID, where you have to really compel students to show up and participate, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, COVID is just in. COVID is a whole game changer in terms of education as a whole. I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what sticks after COVID ends, but the flipped classroom has worked really well during these pandemic times. Yeah, I think that probably the parties will stick. <laughs> oh, you're talking about, oh, right, in the classroom. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I think that the, there is actually a lot in the educational realm, which, you know, um, you wouldn't have done it pre-COVID, but now that we've done it and we've built up some tooling around it in the past year or so, I think people have come to realize that there's actually a better way of doing it compared to pre-COVID. So I think a lot of it will actually change how we think about education going forward. Yeah, so I, I love I love the saying of of the, the question, like who who drove digital transformation in, in your industry? And the answer is usually a global pandemic. Right, yeah. Um, so <laughs> to move things online, uh, so that's that's always great fun. So you you say that you have the students kind of interact, right? And it occurred to me, like, do you encourage pair programming when you're teaching or when they're doing exercises? Yeah, so I think I encourage pair programming or like group programming in the sense that usually what I'll do is during the synchronous time, during lecture time in Zoom, I'll provide a problem and I'll say, okay, everyone's going to, we're going to break out rooms now where we have groups of three or four people. And then your job is to figure out how to solve that together. So it's not necessarily pair programming, but you know the idea is you're tasked with as a group figuring out the optimal solution or one solution to this problem, and then come back and report how you thought about it or what were the different approaches you took. And then also the way I've structured assignments is that you know you have to do this basic assignment, which I give you scaffolding for, and then you have to extend it beyond the basic functionality. And so for the extensions, you can actually work with other people and collaborate. Um, you know, bounce ideas off each other and think about different approaches. Um, so I think there's a lot of kind of peer feedback and collaboration in that as well. 
like how would you say you, you split the time between between language a platform and and telling people uh to to i don't know discuss discuss problem sets come up with uh with compound solutions yeah i would say i motivate it primarily through the framework android framework and i introduce kotlin concepts only insofar as it actually helps me in service of android concepts so for example like in the very beginning of the class i show an example of like a bigger number app where like you have two numbers on the screen you pick which one is bigger and that's a very natural example of like whatever the function that gets drawn the the code that gets drawn when you hit that button um that can be a function right and you kind of parameterize that with which number which button you clicked on the left button or the right button and so that's an example of where that's the first time i even talk about functions in kotlin and like here's how you create your own function with a parameter and types and so on so i think that kind of approach um, okay, people are there for Android. They signed up for an Android class. They didn't necessarily sign up for a Kotlin class. So I feel like I try and motivate the, the teaching in, in that way. And speaking about motivation, how do you stay motivated? Because, I mean, you know, anyone that's taught, right, whether it's, I mean, even if you've been doing speaking and you go and give the same talk or presentation 10, 15 times, it, it completely, like, wears you out, right? Now you take that concept and you do it in a, in a class where you have to, it could be a whole semester. How do you stay motivated yourself? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is that I've only taught the class twice. After the 10th time, the 10th iteration, maybe I'll have a different answer. But I think, um, you know, I, I've, I've loved teaching it. And the other thing about Android, I mean, you probably know this, is that, you know, Android changes so rapidly. So even between the first iteration and the second iteration, there was a gap of like, you know, six months. Even in that time, some of the things I had done became out of date. So I had to redo some of my lectures or redo parts of my of my slides in order to accommodate these changes in Android. So I feel like that keeps you on your toes a lot more than you know if you're teaching, you know, introduction to C or Python. Probably you don't have to make as many amendments to your lecture. Yeah, I think that would actually be a good uh, slogan. You know, Android keeping teachers on their toes. I I, I really I really thought this was going to be a JavaScript joke now, Hadi. Like, I, I, but, I, I, I'm, I'm more than just JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. you're, you're behaving. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> um, so, is there actually? Would you say that there are such significant changes in in the uh, in? I was going to say in the JavaScript ecosystem, uh, in the in the Android ecosystem, um, that significant the impact. Like, I, I assume you're mostly teaching foundations, like fundamentals. Are these things still changing so rapidly, in your opinion? I would say that if you look, if you zoom out a little bit and you look at the like, you know, three or five year time scale, things actually still are changing in a very dramatic way. So, for example, I don't know if you um, saw the recent announcements about Jetpack Compose. The Jetpack Compose is going to be a very, very different paradigm, a very different way of structuring your layouts and building layouts. So, things like the Recycler View, which is one of the core concepts I teach in the class, you could actually avoid that altogether if you really dive into Jetpack Compose. So I think things like that are going to be changing longer term. And then more practically, um, Android Studio, the software changes a lot. So they had this plugin, which was included by default in Android Studio called Kotlin Android Extensions, which basically allowed you a really nice way to communicate between the layout and the Kotlin file. So you could reference different views on the screen. That actually broke with an upgrade to Android Studio, which happened in like it happened recently, like less than a year ago. And so there ha you had to use view binding or you had to use these find view by ID calls in order to actually reference things. So things like that make me, 
I have to constantly re-record parts of my videos or my of, or my lecture because small things like that keep breaking um, if you don't keep them up to date. Yeah, I was also going to mention that like the the way in which you can access data changes every six months with Android as well, right? <laughs> in a sense, but but talking about Android Studio, how much do you balance or I don't even want to say balance. I'm like, do you find that the students get frustrated with, with the tooling and with the ecosystem a lot? And how much do they end up spending time in trying to fight that? Or is it mostly, you know, smooth process? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest pain points is that at least initially getting used to Android Studio and all the surrounding tooling like Gradle is actually quite overwhelming. Like Android Studio as a, as a, uh, application is quite overwhelming. There's so many buttons. There's so many things going on. It's very easy to like, for example, close a project tool window. And then, you know, how do I get it back? I don't know how to do that. Or another example is I had a student who would, you know, they would use an emulator, like most students would use an emulator to develop their application. And after making any change, um, they would actually close the emulator and then restart it to deploy their new change. And so like, I think they didn't realize that, you know, you could keep the emulator running, but keep pushing a new APK or a new uh, application onto the device. But things like that that you don't realize can really eat up a lot of time um, and make you frustrated with Android if, you're, if you don't kind of have that uh, working knowledge of it. Do you, do you still uh, focus on, on some parts of the, of the IDE? Like, I don't know, do you talk your students through how to debug, I don't know, IDE shortcuts, whatever, or is it really just... However, you get to the goal, just right. just get there. <laughs> so, I mean, so this is actually where I leverage my my YouTube channel quite a bit, where I actually have a video about the Android Studio introduction. Like, here are the main buttons that you have to think about. So, strip away everything, but here are like the core things you should really think about. And then I also so that, that's like required viewing. I make everyone watch that um, on my YouTube. But then I also have a bunch of other videos like shortcuts and things. That, okay, if you really care about being efficient and like you want to actually spend more time in Android Studio and, and feel good about your workflow, then here, watch these other three or four videos. But I kind of leave it up to the student. So I think one of the other um, kind of approaches in my mind is low floor, high ceiling. Meaning that, you know, if you just wanted to get by and like just get the project done, it's actually fairly easy to do that. And I give you a lot of goalposts that you can hit in order to achieve that milestone and get credit for the class, if that's your goal. On the other hand, if you really actually want to build a career out of doing Android development, or if you just want to go deeper and publish an app on the Play Store, then you also have an opportunity there. And I give you a lot of references and guides that you can take on your own time and, and, and go as, as far as you want. So I think it's kind of up to the student to decide how committed are they to, the, to learning Android. So what's the hardest topic you found to teach? Hmm. Um, I think one of the hardest things initially is just the recycler view. I think like if you look at mobile, like paradigms, and you look at 80 or 90% of the screens that you look at on your mobile device is a scrollable list of items, right? Like that's like the core thing that you do. It's like you, you go through your Twitter feed or you go through your Facebook feed, like everything is a list of items that you scroll through. And so a very natural thing is, let me um, put things in a recycler view and get data that you can put into, into the adapter. And I think students are always surprised by why is it so complicated to just show a list of items where you have to have a view holder, an adapter, this recycler view component, a layout manager. Like, why are we adding all this complexity? So I feel like once you get over that, that's actually one of the hardest parts about, you know, an intro Android class. Everything else kind of becomes smooth sailing after that. 
And do you talk to them about testing at all? And and these are some of the reasons for this. I mean, at least for some type of architectures that you put in place. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's actually one of the things that if we had more time, I definitely would talk about things like the testing pyramid and, and unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing. But right now, to be totally honest, we don't talk about Android testing or testing in general at all. <laughs> like, I think people are way more focused on, let me just put pixels on the screen. Let me show off what I've built to my friends and my family. Um, I think the motivation for testing at this stage in the in the development journey is actually quite low. I give them like pointers to here's a, here's how you can learn more about it. But yeah, we don't actually spend very much time in class at all talking about testing. Do you talk about like debugging and and like I don't know er error resolutions at all? Because I feel like this is always a topic where where students or being able to help yourself is seems like a key skill, especially when things get complicated. Yeah, 100%. I think that's actually, in terms of like teaching, that's one of the things that I really love about it, which is that, um, like the way I think about it is that you come into the class as somewhat of a novice in the world of Android, meaning that you don't really have a way to structure information. You don't know how concepts relate to one another. And the definition of an expert, in my opinion, is a person who can actually take a problem they encounter and relate that problem to a previous problem they had, or a Uh, information that they had collected previously, and they can figure out how to unblock themselves. So this idea of debugging and like being able to navigate people with the tools to unblock themselves, that's, I think, a core part of my job as a teacher. Um, so in terms of how to achieve that, yeah, I have basically a video walkthrough where I talk about debugging. And the other part is that that's where the, you know, the synchronous time um, in class is so critical. So I always try to avoid just showing code on a screen. Instead, I'll actually hop into Android Studio or hop into IntelliJ and show people like, okay, here's how IntelliJ is helping me with autocomplete. And here's how I can look at what are the different options I have. Here's how I explore the API. Um, and I think being able to do live coding is really beneficial for people to understand how do I think about approaching this problem. And do you have any plans to, I mean, right now you're using, or, or let me let me rephrase what I was going to say. We previously spoke about how you're constantly updating the courses, right? Uh, that, that kind of keeps you on your toes. Uh, until what level do you take it? Do you include things that are not released yet? Like, for example, Jetpack Compose? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think the answer here, there's no right answer, I would say. Like, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to adopting new technology. So Jetpack Compose just hit beta, which is definitely a big milestone in terms of its stability. But I think I probably won't include Jetpack Compose until I see... Um, it being stable and actually being adopted in industry. I think I, I'm much more on the side of let's do what is tried and true and what people have already established as best practices. And let me try and teach those. Um, unless there's a compelling reason to, I probably won't go to the cutting edge um, for a teaching class. So do you completely kind of constrain yourself to, to watch ships with, uh, with Android or do you also kind of expand a little bit on, on the ecosystem Uh, do you have some tried and tested third-party frameworks, libraries that you that you usually pull in, maybe maybe at a later point? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely parts of Android where it's unavoidable that you need to kind of use some third-party library. Like a good example is image loading, right? Like it would be kind of crazy to just use the framework for image loading. Almost everyone I know uses Glide or Picasso or Fresco, right? One of these popular image loading libraries. So things like that, I definitely will will plug in. Um, a library. And I think there's also kind of, I'm not sure if there's 100% answering your question, but um, keeping it really focused on developing apps. I also talk about Firebase 
um, for a decent amount of time. Because I think one of the core things that people want to do is I want to ship my own idea to the Play Store and actually get real, um, you know, a CRUD application where I can create data, update data, and so on. Um, and so I do talk about Firebase and the many libraries that Firebase provides in order to like be able to have a real-time database. Um, so things like that, anything which is really applicable to, I want to build an app and I want to show it off to my friends and family. I try and include that um, where it's possible. So outside of Android, where do you want to see Kotlin grow in terms of, uh, you know, academically? Yeah, I, I really do think that there is a lot of promise in kind of what we were joking about earlier, which is that um, a lot of intro classes, I think, could really benefit from Kotlin because you have a lot of the benefit of the expressiveness of, you know, Python, um, but you have a lot of the type safety of, you know, a strongly typed language. And it, you force students to think about nullability and mutability of like a list, for example, right? I think things like that actually can make it really well suited for just general purpose programming beyond Android. And you can write linked lists from Kotlin. Well, why do yeah. we need your standard library, Seb? We should do this all ourselves. <laughs> well, you, you can if you want to, right? After, after people have completed your class and, and they're kind of done, done with things, where, where do people go next? Are there, are there more classes that you offer in Stanford, some, something advanced, something that you maybe offer? Uh, where do you see people going? Yeah, so I think the kind of, there are two, two directions here, right? One is if you want to go further in the world of Android, that's kind of the end of the road at Stanford, at least. Like, there's nothing, there's not like an advanced Android class. I, I think maybe at, at some point, you know, if mobile becomes bigger and bigger, we might explore having a whole mobile development track. But right now, this is kind of it. Um, and so for that, I think I encourage people to check out, there's a ton of really great content for Android, either on YouTube or, you know, Coursera or, you know, Google has a bunch of code labs to explore more advanced concepts. So I always point people to that. And then within the Stanford curriculum, I think it depends on what you want. A lot of people are just there to learn how to build things. So we have um, the 193P that I think you mentioned you've taken, which is about iPhone development. We have a web development class. Um, so kind of depending on how people want to, to, to structure their, their learning, they, can, they oftentimes will go out and, and do the other app development classes as well. Are you are you working at all together with any kind of I don't know Silicon Valley companies or something that that bring I don't know a, a task or something to the to the classroom or um, that, that that are interested in in people uh, who 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 graduate from your class anything like that Yeah, I mean not not right now. I feel like <clears throat> I think I would love to explore that. What what I found is that typically like if you actually give students a real world app, like a real world bug and a real app out there, oftentimes the context required to actually understand the bug, understand how to even deploy the application, how to navigate, all that takes a bunch of time, which takes away a lot of the valuable, you know, time that I have with the students to actually give them more of the Android framework. But I think, yeah, like the idea of, you know, identifying students who really care about Android and are, are high performers and giving them an internship opportunity or a full-time opportunity, that's something that I would love to explore. Um, you know, if if uh, I have that ability to to cross the bridge between industry and academia, it's cool. Well, it's uh, we're running out of time. It was great to have you uh, as a guest on this show. Uh, thank you for your efforts in, in promoting and uh, teaching Kotlin. And uh, yeah, it was great having you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I mean, I'm a big fan of Kotlin. I'm a big fan of teaching. So I feel like um, you know. It's been really fun to kind of dive into the world of teaching at Stanford and, and marrying Android and Colin. So it's been something that I've really enjoyed. And, and thanks for having me on the show.
Now we just need to push it to all places, all places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Co everywhere. Kotlin everywhere. Oh, I, everywhere. I, I still remember that. That was good. Yeah, that was good. That was great. Do you still want to shout anything out uh, before we wrap up? Uh, I think we alluded that you have a YouTube channel. Yeah, I mean, I, if people are interested, I'd love for people to check out my YouTube channel. I primarily make content about Kotlin or Android. And then if you're interested about the class, and a, a lot of the content is available um, on my website, cs194a.stanford.edu. And I'm happy to you know connect with people or answer any questions if they have any. Awesome. And we'll post the show notes, uh, the, the links in the show notes. Perfect. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, cool. But do we do we still need to do the outro with the with the whole like and subscribe? Uh. <laughs> <laughs>